It's interesting looking from the UK at the US because I think there are differences between the UK and the US. I have this vague hope that it might be possible, given that we share a common language, that we might be able to help by resolving some of the some of the issues that are that are kind of completely pulling your society apart. Like you, do, you guys don't seem to be able to talk to each other in any meaningful way, and you've got this huge split between the kind of the media classes where there seems to be a, a much more effective firewall around certain topics in the US, like the trans conversation, for example, where certain views will put you beyond the pale in polite society. There's a more healthy conversation going on in the UK now. Like, I think there are a few reasons why we have a slightly healthier conversation. It doesn't mean that the conversation is any less fraught, and I think it is just as heated over here. But I, I don't think that the, the battle lines have been drawn in quite the same way. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is British journalist, broadcaster, and filmmaker David Fuller. In 2018, David founded Rebel Wisdom, a multi-format media platform devoted to a lot of the kinds of things we do around here, namely attempting to get at the truth, or at least as close as possible to the truth, through intellectual honesty and self-scrutiny. This ecosystem of thought has come to be called sense-making, and Rebel Wisdom offers everything from a YouTube channel to online courses in its aim to showcase various kinds of thinkers and foster connections between like-minded or even not so like-minded people all over the world. He started out in legacy media more than 20 years ago, working as a producer at the BBC and Channel 4 until around eh, 2014, 2015. He, like a lot of us, started to become interested in what some podcasters and YouTubers were offering as an alternative to the prescribed narratives of ideologically driven clickbait on much of mainstream media. You've heard me say that before, probably in exactly those words. His very first Rebel Wisdom video was an interview with Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who, by the way, was not the clickbait figure he would later become. David has since become both immersed in the so-called IDW, that's intellectual dark web, uh, or heterodox space, and somewhat disenchanted with it as it falls prey to audience capture and uh, in some cases tends to say the same thing over and over again to placate subscribers. Since David and I have had similar trajectories in this regard, we've spoken at least a couple of times over the last year, uh, and I was a guest on Rebel Wisdom last December. I wanted to bring him on The Unspeakable to talk about how he's feeling about things these days, and also a feeling that we both have that a new iteration of sense-making is about to rise to the surface. I've called it heterodox 2.0, um, although we can always use some better coinages. I should also tell you that because Rebel Wisdom is a video platform, I recorded this interview on video as well as audio. However, for some reason, every time I talk with David, I manage to have some kind of embarrassing technical problem. The last time I was in my apartment in New York City, which is terrible for recording video podcasts because it's small space and the sun tends to come barreling in very intensely and looks like a UFO is landing. 
this time I have a better space, but I managed to lose all control of my fancy new lavalier microphone. That's the kind you clip to your shirt and uh, it managed to fall off of my body and or down my shirt at multiple times during the interview. Uh, The gain on the monitor was also set too high, the fault of my audio engineer, who is me. uh, And there was some distortion, which I've tried to reduce, but is pretty hard to get rid of. The good news is that David does most of the talking and he sounds just fine. So maybe just try to tune me out as much as possible. That's been done before. And here's my interview with David Fuller. David Fuller, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Good to see you, Megan. It's great to see you. As my listeners know, I don't normally record on video, but we're doing this as a video interview because your uh, whole imprimatur, Rebel Wisdom, is very video-oriented, and I know you and I have spoken on your podcast. So I thought we would just kind of pick up from maybe where we were talking uh, whenever we last spoke. And I know we've had a couple of conversations in the interim, many of them having to do with kind of the state of the heterodoxy. I don't know how else to put it. I know that's something you've been um, following a lot and you have a lot of thoughts about sort of where the the so-called IDW is in this moment. But um, maybe we could just start by you talking about what you've been thinking about lately in terms of all of this. Yeah. So that's kind of been my obsession, I guess, as someone who came from mainstream or legacy media into alternative media in about 2018 with coinciding with the kind of rise of Jordan Peterson and then the birth of the intellectual dark web, which I know you marked as well with your kind of famous essay and feeling like coming from a very narrow conversation and feeling sort of very aligned with, I think, what Barry Weiss first said in her New York Times article, that it would be great to crack open the doors of conversation a little bit more. And that sense of, particularly in 2018, that there was a, a kind of insurgency against a kind of naive liberal worldview that was kind of all pervasive in the media and that these there were lots of topics that couldn't really be reasonably talked about and that was a necessary thing and uh, a friend of mine summarized that as saying jordan peterson broke a conversational seal mm. and so feeling that kind of quite keenly and then yeah showcasing a lot of those voices interviewing a lot of those people and then feeling more and more like i feel like very keenly like we're not in 2018 anymore there has is that a been, good thing or a bad thing? Do you want to click your heels and go back, or are you? Uh, is it are you, goodbye to all that? I mean, what I what I mean by that is that I feel we've had the we've had the kind of response, and while it's true that there are there is still a lot of kind of naive uh, ideological capture in a lot of the institutions, there is also a very strong counterpoint to that, and I feel like what we need now is more of a synthesis, not a kind of insurgency, but a more of a synthesis. There needs to be a heterodoxy that has more nuance and more, and is oriented towards, because I also think that whole IDW, or IDW movement got captured itself. It became kind of quite reactionary. A lot of the key figures in it became quite either reactionary or conspiratorial or 
captured by their audience. And the sort of the, the big picture is if the IDW, as it was first framed as a kind of alternative sense-making enterprise, and I, I fully believed in that at the time, I was really reassured to see that there was sort of something of a bottom-up response from the internet to the failures of the mainstream media. But what we've seen, like the morality tale of the IDW has been the failure conditions of the alternative media, which is mainly the failure conditions of what happens when we become our brands. And we get captured by our audience, we get captured by the incentive structures. And that for me is like the big, in a way, still untold story of the last four or five years is the is the morality tale of the IDW. And we can kind of point to individual cases, but I think we can all, most of us who've been paying attention to the space can can see that that's was one of, one of the things that was not appreciated. We all, like I put out an interview with Eric Weinstein where he talked about the, the incentive structures within the mainstream and how they walk truth-seeking. But what we found is that there are incentive structures outside the mainstream that walk truth-seeking just as, just as completely. And in a way, all of the, this is why I talk about the crisis of sense-making a lot and the way that we're impacted by all the different kind of ways that we inter we encounter the world through filter bubbles and incentive structures and the race to the bottom of the brainstem. What I think has become increasingly clear is that all of those factors that are operating all of us individually are magnified on creators, especially if you then, your entire livelihood and your entire living is based on feeding that beast. And I think we've seen an awful lot of people get lost in that kind of incentive overload of information that's been coming back so yeah that's the, that's the big picture and then right now i'm fascinated by the russia situation and how that is providing yet another moment of clarity a moment of moral clarity in many ways i would say and also it's it really more than anything else that's happened shows that the idea that we can set the world to rights through long form podcasting is just ludicrous like it just demonstrates <laughs> it demonstrates we need the institutions desperately we need we need functioning structures and we need functioning media we need all of these things and it's like and for me that's a kind of it's a little bit of a relief in a way like to be honest the, the russia thing has been a bit of a relief because i've seen a lot of people humiliate themselves who needed to be humiliated with their kind of hot takes on blaming it on single factors like oh it's because of wokeness or oh it's God, because of yeah. this or because of that and it's like that's insane and i think it's also a kind of wake-up call for what really needs to happen which is i think some rebooting of the institutions and um the necessity of the institutions yeah the wokeness take that doesn't I'm surprised to see um, otherwise intelligent people really uh, doubling down on that. It's can you explain where you think that's coming from? Is it just reflexive at this point to want to blame everything on wokeness because it sort of feels good viscerally? I think there are different layers to it. I think if you're going to make the argument that the West has lost faith in itself and wokeness is a factor of that, I think there's some truth there to say that there is this very influential viewpoint in the West that basically sees the West as a kind of, the West values as a, essentially a cloak for nothing but power and that effectively we're just the same as Putin 
And obviously that view is being pushed and amplified by the Russians themselves as much as possible. Um, then you can understand, okay, there is, there is this powerful, powerful worldview that is sort of attacking the West from within. I think there's some truth to that. But if you're going to blame, you're going to reduce down like geopolitical history and Russia's imperial ambitions and Putin's kind of increasing isolation and all of these different factors that have led to where we're at now to, oh, it's because the military is now insisting you put your pronouns in your bio or something like that. It's just, it's ludicrous. It's, it's completely insane to, to reduce it down to that. But at the same time, I do think that there is some truth to the idea that there are enemies within, but I think there are enemies within in, on all sides. There's the, there's the kind of QAnon phenomenon on the right that kind of is, is very pro-Putin and is, is equally, and what I say about the wokeness thing is it's not, it's not wokeness as much as it's, it's the split over topics like wokeness. It's actually the culture war itself that is, that is the weakening thing, not necessarily one side or the other. It's the fact that these things have become incredibly divisive and are, are tearing our societies apart. So in a way, it's, it's one side of the picture, but the, the whole picture is that it's, it's the culture war over these topics that is the, the fundamental or one of the fundamental things I think that Putin is looking at and saying that this is weakening the West. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just back up a little bit in case in case there's anyone in my audience who's not totally familiar with you. You come from legacy well, media. haven't heard about the war in Ukraine yet. Yeah, well, who knows when this is going to air. So it might be over by the time I, I post this in, in a week. But okay, so you came from legacy media. You are like a Gen X guy. You you did not grow up in the world of podcasts and YouTube. What was what was it like for you to be working in mainstream media when you did, and when did you sort of start to become frustrated with it? So I trained as a journalist in about 2002. I started working at the BBC originally as an online journalist when that was sort of first when that pretty much first started, and then transferred over, trained in TV in 2005. Then I worked as a foreign producer for many years at Channel 4 News, covering things like the Arab Spring and kind of geopolitics. And then in 2012, I left. I actually did a couple of documentaries about Russia after I left Channel 4 News. So I was doing mostly documentaries from about 2012 onwards. But I've had a lot of experience within the newsroom the BBC and Channel 4 News, which I think is a fairly, it's an interesting place to be because you then, you do start to really see like what the contours of the conversation are in a very sort of up close and personal way. And my my sense of where the conversation was very narrow was actually related to probably more spirituality than anything else, was the sense that most of our metrics and most of the way we understand the world is very materialist, it's very rationalist, it's very, I was very aware of how the conversation was kind of shaped by the sort of new atheist worldview and felt, and I was doing a lot of meditation practice, I was doing a lot of kind of transformational work and feeling like there was a more interesting story that wasn't being told about deeper purpose and why we were here, like the the bigger bigger questions of life, like why we were here, uh, what are we capable of, and just feeling like the, the news agenda was so, so narrowly focused on a very small number of metrics, like 
GDP, for example, rather than what is a what is what makes a life worth living. And so that was my initial feeling of of where I felt my level of frustration. And it wasn't really until and so that was what I really wanted to be doing when I when I left was making more films about that. And that's why I was so drawn by Jordan Peterson when I first heard him in 2017. And wow, this kind of like deep mythological perspective that just felt really, really resonant. And I still would urge anyone who has a kind of opinion about Jordan Peterson to go back to his initial lecture series, The Maps of Meaning from 2017, because his is a, a really fascinating very complex kind of theory of everything that I, I still think is brilliant, very, yeah, really fascinating. And so from there, Jordan Peterson, I then went on to other thinkers like Ken Wilber and other kind of philosophers. And really since then, Rebel Wisdom has been about trying to look at cultural topics and explain cultural topics through the deeper philosophical, psychological lenses, very much feeling like we're in a time where those lenses are now increasingly relevant. We've all got a sense that some of the frameworks that that we've been that have been kind of ruling our lives are breaking down, like this very technocratic, rationalist way of understanding the world is sort of increasingly breaking down, and one of the themes that we talk about is the kind of return of we're in i sort of see it as we're in a post secular age so we're seeing all of these manifestations of kind of religious phenomenon coming out after the end of a sort of the, the death of the kind of technocratic worldview that was symbolized by an unglobalist worldview as well that was symbolized by Trump and by Brexit and i think now what we're seeing is a lot of these kind of religious impulses making themselves known through politics in terms of woke and maga or qanon and th this is yeah that, that's those are the most interesting lenses that i find to kind of try and understand what's happening at the moment and i yeah i, I find it so much more fascinating to look at things through a kind of religious lens or a philosophical or psychological lens because those yeah i just think those are Far more interesting conversations to be had. Oh, I didn't realize that you that this had started with Jordan Peterson for you, and he's such a he's the classic example of of audience capture. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about just your your journey in terms of your relationship to him and his work and his persona? Have, have you interviewed him? What's your relationship to him personally? Yeah, so I interviewed him in 2017, and that was. The first piece that was put out on Rebel Wisdom. I did a, I interviewed him on 2017. I then put out a documentary about him that was um, the first film that came out. But then he had that famous meeting with Kathy Newman. That, and I'd been working with Kathy Newman only a week or two before in the Channel 4 News office. So I was like, struck by this incredible synchronicity because I'd just done the first documentary about Jordan Peterson. I used to work at Channel 4 News. And a lot of what I've been talking to Jordan Peterson about was synchronicity. So I was kind of struck by this kind of obvious synchronicity. And then I put together a film called A Glitch in the Matrix about 
the whole the layers of what was going on during his conversation with Kathy Newman, and then what it reflected about the media, what it re- reflected about gender politics, what it reflected about a moment in time in the sort of post-Trump era, and that was the thing that went really viral and pretty much gave birth to Rebel Wisdom. Okay. So he put that on his channel as well, and and I maintained a kind of back and forth with him for a while, and then at some point lost that connection. I think it was about the same time that I did a quite challenging interview with Dave Rubin, where I kind of took him to task and what I felt was a very partisan way that he was doing things. And I mean, I mean, everyone knows the story of Dave Rubin by now, pretty much. But this was about 2018, I think, when I did the interview with Rubin. And he was very unhappy about it. And I think that was what ended my relationship with Jordan Peterson. Since then, I look back and I I do think the initial hopes that I had, a lot of what he was saying then, he was a sort of slightly more muscular version of Jonathan Haidt. If you look at what he was saying back back then, he was saying we need the left and we need the right. And more and more, he he became, instead of kind of holding up what I would call more of a synthesis position beyond the culture war, he became a culture warrior himself. Right. And... And took sides, I mean, I guess he took sides fairly early on, but but increasingly just became more and more, yeah, as you said, audience captured, I, I guess, is a is a good summary. So I'm I mean, because of course I, I remember the video that you that you did. That was that's an incredible film. And you know, just so our audience knows, the Kathy Newman interview was the one where she was talking with him and she kind of reduced the whole thing down to the to the pronoun dispute, was that right? So he kind of was that in the fall of 2016 that he that that kind of no, broke the C16 was, or the uh, when was yeah that? the C16 thing was was 2016. The Channel right. News interview was January 2018. Oh, okay. So what was she? What was their little argument? Where because he was saying uh, you know he was trying to make some complicated points, and she kept saying, "Well, well, what you're saying is," and then she would reduce it to like nothingness, and this became a meme, literally. So, hmm. what was the actual um, kind of point of contention in that interview? Just to uh, remind our listeners, do you it was remember? Mostly about yeah, it was mostly about um, gender. And she she was trying to frame him as he was trying to make the argument that there were differences between men and women. And she was trying to frame him as saying that there should be differences between men and women (laughs) and that he would impose those as a member of the patriarchy, even though he was able to say, look, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've worked with women over many years to try and increase their disagreeability and to, to encourage them to go for raises. And there's lots of these other right. reasons why women are paid less than men. Or, and, and yeah, she kept trying to frame him as, as a kind of retrograde misogynist, which clearly didn't work. And she, and she kind of, but it was, also, it was also a case of, she was playing a very old media role of trying to catch him out. She was a, Kathy Newman used to be a political correspondent. I don't know if anyone, your American listeners probably wouldn't know that, but Kathy was a a very good political correspondent. And political journalism in the UK is really all about like how do you catch the person out? How do you get right. them? It's a very gladiatorial form of it's the of gotcha journalism. Yeah, 
as we call very it much here. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And so she came from that origin. And she also came from that origin where the Houses of Parliament, political journalism is probably one of the last bastions of, of quite really misogynistic what kind of interaction. So I think she's she was sort of quite alert for that and over kind of expected that that's who she was going to deal with. So I'm curious if you have thoughts about what brings your audience to Rebel Wisdom? Because we know there's a sort of common narrative about what Jordan Peterson's audience found attractive about him. I mean, we know it was a lot of young men. Obviously, these are huge generalizations. There's a lot of women who are interested in him, myself included. I'm not a, I'm not a fangirl, but um, I think he has a lot of valuable things to offer. But this is what we know, you know, disaffected young men, they're looking for a father figure, they, they, they don't feel that they have any structure or discipline in their lives on the most fundamental level. Okay, so we know that about him. You build rebel wisdom out of, you know, covering Jordan Peterson and sort of thinking out loud about him. What kinds of people started coming to you? And what were they telling you was missing from their own lives? Yeah, it's interesting because I would say that we so we have a membership model where people pay a certain amount and come to our regular events. And they I don't know if so many of them were Jordan Peterson. A lot of them obviously found us through Jordan Peterson, but it's it's much more gender mixed. Mm-hmm. There's there's probably Closer to 50-50, I would say, maybe 60-40 men to women in our membership. And we've got a lot more people who come from the integral background. So Ken Wilber's philosophy of the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, he was trying to sort of synthesize all of the world's knowledge, including spirituality, into one system. And then a lot of people were attracted to that. And so we, I would say that the kind of integral refugees is how we kind of see them are make up quite a large proportion of our of our membership, and not so many of the Jordan Peterson fans. I would say we don't have so many of them. It's more, and certainly since since the Jordan Peterson days, which really kind of peaked, I guess, in 2018. Most of the people that we have now are attracted to the personal growth stuff that we do. We do kind of one or two uh, sessions a month based on different personal growth practices. We do a sense-making course, which is based around making sense of the world, but also making sense of ourselves. So using practices from meditation and breath work and stuff like that. To So we, we bias probably more towards the kind of personal growth kind of ecosystem than, than the Jordan Peterson one, I would say. But, but there's still an overlap with, with people who are interested in deep kind of religious or mythological frames as well. And how many of them are actually coming and saying, I am fed up with wokeness and this feels like an antidote? Is it that literal? I think a lot of people are pleased to find others who feel shut down in their own lives and are glad to find others who that they can express themselves with. But it's not... It's not a dominant perspective, I wouldn't say. Um, and I'm glad of that because I think that's one of the dangers. And I think we had that a little bit more at the beginning where there was a, a lot more kind of quite hardcore, anti-woke 
people. And I feel like someone like Dave Rubin probably, especially once you build your sort of Patreon off the back of people like that, you you get yourself into trouble. I feel quite glad we managed to avoid that because we we moved away from just that kind of content yeah. quite early. Yeah, I mean, because I'm having an interesting thing happen where, so like I teach writing workshops, right? And so I'm having more and more people come to the writing workshop, not necessarily because they want to write, because they want to kind of have a place to talk about heterodox ideas. And it's not, they're not like super anti-wokeness people, but they want those kinds of nuanced conversations. But I have noticed, I think, and this is why I wanted to talk with you now in particular, that even in the last six months, it's like the, a lot of the, you know, the, the, the Dave Rubens of the world, that's, I think he's jumped the shark, but you know, the constant, like the, you know, banging away at culture war issues, you know, day after day after day, I think that's wearing thin on people but they really don't know where to go. It's hard to kind of find a third way. You know, it's like, how do you get past, how, how do you talk about the, th- instead of talking about what you can't talk about, how do you just talk about, talk about the things and what are the things? And then how much do you obsess about those particular things? It's like, do we talk, I want to talk about gender in a way that is is productive and useful because I do think it's urgent that we have certain kinds of conversations about what's going on with gender ideology and the medical establishment and all that. I don't see that as a culture war issue necessarily, but I guess my question for you is how do you guide people with respect to isolating exactly what needs to be talked about and kind of getting rid of the, the hysteria and just kind of anger at other people's inabilities to talk about it? Yeah. So we have, for example, we're, we're just about to launch a course called The Art of Difficult Conversation, where we've got a facilitator who's trained in authentic relating and various other kind of modalities of communication styles. And so that, that's very much core is like, how do you give people those tools and those skills? The other thing I'd say is that it's interesting looking from the UK at the US, because I think there are differences between the UK and the US. I have this vague hope that it might be possible, given that we share a common language, that we might be able to help by resolving some of the some of the issues that are that are kind of completely pulling your society apart. Like you don't you guys don't seem to be able to talk to each other in any meaningful way. And you've got this huge split between the kind of the media classes where there seems to be a a much more effective firewall around certain topics in the US, like the trans conversation, for example, where certain views will put you beyond the pale in polite society. There's a more healthy conversation going on in the UK now. Really? You have JK Rowling. How can you say that? I feel like you guys started the, uh, the impossibility of talking about gender. Well, that's what I mean. It's like JK Rowling is a classic example of a kind of old school feminist Labour Party stalwart who who questions the gender ID thing. And she's like she's she's obviously taken a lot of uh, stick for it, but I think has has successfully put has put the, the conversation on the map. We've had a series of fascinating developments over here, like with Stonewall, uh, the the Stonewall podcast created by the BBC of all of right. all things. Right. So the BBC created a podcast about the influence of Stonewall's 
gender ideology on the BBC, asking whether the BBC could remain neutral if it was being signed up to the Stonewall's gender diversity scheme. I think it was the diversity champion scheme. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's extraordinary. And it also shows, like, I think there are a few reasons why we have a slightly healthier conversation. It doesn't mean that the conversation is any less fraught. And I think it is just as heated over here. But I, I don't think that the, the battle lines have been drawn in quite the same way. And so there is a healthier conversation because I think a lot of old school feminists who are influential within the Labour Party and within kind of um, British culture are questioning this dogma. And, mm-hmm. and also, I, I look at even the COVID conversation. We kind of did the right thing at the right times most of the time in the UK. We never really masked children. We never insisted on mandates. We never insisted on vaccine passports. We never divided society based on your vaccination status. We kind of muddled through in a fairly kind of smart way. And it just seems that the reason we were able to do that is that the conversations didn't break down quite as much as they did elsewhere in the world. You look at Canada as a perfect example of what happens where the conversation completely breaks down and you you get this kind of group think around the the government and Trudeau and people who then basically create a polarization with others who disagree. And then you get this kind of crazy face off between the two where you think, how on earth have they got themselves into this position? So yeah, that's a, a broader way around of saying, I think and hope that we might have the talent for synthesis of some of these conversations where you can have a nuanced conversation that holds certain things in balance that it seems that you guys in the US are not capable of doing. Yeah, what's uh, what's your secret? What are we doing wrong that you're doing right? I think it's a series of factors linked to the fact that it's a longer longer evolving society. I think it's there's a healthier media ecosystem because the BBC acts as this kind of central unifying force that is not commercial it still has its biases it still has its problems but it's not it's not invested in clickbait in the same way after brexit the the bbc was forced to say we need to represent people better than we did we're we're paid for by everyone in the country so that's one there's a much more centralized media ecosystem that i think is means that people are talking to each other more it's centralized on london and I think we're just a little bit more, we've got a little bit more detachment from things. Just the British character is a little bit more detached that we're able to, taking yourself seriously is a, is a real crime in, in Britain. <laughs> and I have to say, you Americans don't, don't have that same immune system activated in the same way. Which also comes back to the IDW because I was going to say no, you know, nobody Trump, takes Trump themselves more seriously than the IDW. Jesus Christ, do these people <laughs> take themselves seriously? Uh, you do have a few IDW figures over there. I mean, Douglas Murray takes himself pretty seriously. Let's uh, let's be fair. Yeah, but he also he's also able to do self-deprecation in a way well, that I can't imagine some of these other people doing. British way, yeah. So that I was yeah. this was going to lead me to my next question. So the IDW, the intellectual dark web. If anybody doesn't know, I mean that I think that that term is um, so cringeworthy as to be pretty clearly on its way out now. But um, do you think that that is a phenomenon that could only have arisen in the U.S.? Jordan Peterson is a Canadian. Let's, but he does yes. take himself seriously. Yes, that's true. 
Yes, I do. I think could it only have existed in the US? I mean, it was naming mostly US people, but not only because Douglas Murray was also included in it as well. Jordan Peterson was included in it. I think yes, because in some ways it's in opposition to the American media ecosystem. And it certainly was naming, I share your concerns or your kind of um, raised eyebrow at the name, but it certainly named something as a, whatever that thing was. And I think it was an emergent phenomenon that in some ways was kind of captured by the idea of the IDW. And in a way, the big tragedy for me was that, and partly to do with the egotism of the people involved, was that it was captured and identified with this group of people rather than the potentially kind of emergent, bottom-up, decentralized phenomenon that it could have been and that some other people were trying to kind of create like conversational clubs or spaces where people felt able to express themselves. And I, I feel like that was one of the big missed opportunities back in 2018 and onwards was that it was captured by these like massive debates on the stage and these sort of like WWF style smackdowns right. between different public figures rather than what is the what is the cultural need that this is fulfilling and where are these yeah how do we create environments where people feel if so many people feel shut down and unable to express themselves how do we create environments where they do in a way that means that it won't kind of go septic go underground or become yeah. The most toxic version of those arguments. Yeah, the whole come debate me uh, invocation is very limiting, I think. I mean, I talked about this with Sam Harris when he was on the podcast. I don't like to debate people. And sometimes I think that's because I'm just being like a coward. But I really don't think it's a productive way of having a, a conversation because by definition, you're trying to win and get the other person to lose. And that's actually antithetical to the mission, right? I mean, the UK has its own history of debate societies. And that's like, you know, very much part of the part of your part of your tradition. Mm. Our debate here in the US is about uh, ratings, you know, it's about yelling at each other, you know, in very, very short television segments. So I think you're right. I think it's impossible to uh, I think it's impossible to get the sort of nuance that was the, the thing that was so exciting about this emergent kind of conversational sphere, it was, it was kind of doomed to fail uh, it, it, with this kind of media structure. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. 
There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. I do want to talk with you about a, a podcast that I think your listeners and mine will be familiar with, which is Decoding the Gurus. So this mm -hmm. is this is as meta as it gets. Okay, so now we have people coming on. You know, we have the the YouTube pundit class talking about uh, what's wrong with legacy media, and now we have um, uh, another set of podcasters commenting on the, on the new podcasters. So. Chris Kavanaugh and Matthew Brown are um, the hosts of Decoding the Gurus. I think it's a really fun podcast. They they critique uh, everyone from Jordan Peterson to um, the Weinsteins. That would be Eric Weinstein and his brother, Brett Weinstein, and Brett's wife, Heather Hying. The, they're the evolutionary biologists. They've been on my show. People are familiar with them. What do you think of Decoding the Gurus? And um, are you a guru yourself? I You can actually go to Reddit. <laughs> where someone posted two days ago on the Decoding the Gurus subreddit, what, where do we stand on David Fuller? <laughs> wow, you know you've made it. Well, I don't want anyone to stand on me if I get a chance, <laughs> but um, it was, it's interesting. It, it, how do I see? So the Decoding the Gurus, I, I like Chris. We've talked a few times. I think that what they do has a large amount of signal. I think it has some noise. They're quite controversial in the heterodox contrarian sphere, and I think uh, I, I kind of seen quite badly. I think some people would see them as kind of ankle biters or yeah. clout chasers. Personally, I think the, the sad truth about the whole IDW space is that these people have framed themselves as being sort of fearless truth tellers and willing to have the difficult conversations that no one else is, and yet almost universally, they are terrible at taking feedback or at, at even even having conversations with people who disagree. Yeah. They're, they're appalling. They're and remarkably thin-skinned. I have noticed that there's yeah. nobody more thin-skinned than an edgelord. It's actually uncanny. Yeah. And, and that's really, that's not good. And Chris makes the point that it's worse if you frame yourself in the in the way that you are open to that and yet and yet you're not. Because if you were just a partisan, if you were kind of in the dirtbag left or the kind of alt-right or whatever, and you were just a partisan, no one watching has any other impression other than they're a partisan. Whereas if you frame yourself as kind of 
the good faith person who's willing to have the conversations other people aren't, and yet that's not what you're doing, then I think that's a real problem. And so I think there, that criticism is really important. I think Chris and Matt, as I say, I think they, they're good faith. I think they sometimes walk the line between, between sarcasm and snark. And I've, I've made this point to Chris in a piece that I'm probably releasing fairly soon. And I really wonder how that's going to go down because it does feel like a kind of reaching across the boundaries in a way that I think is absolutely necessary. I see the, the way I look at the ecosystem, the information ecosystem, is that the, the intellectual dark web named this sort of emergent phenomenon and a certain number of people who were a counterpoint to the mainstream narrative. And then the decoding the gurus is the sort of the tip of a group of people who've also found themselves online, often academics, who are critical of the members of the IDW for mostly valid reasons. And the decoding the gurus, some of them are more or less good faith or bad faith in the way that they criticize some of these quite prominent people. But I think Chris and Matt are mostly good faith. And I also think they're open to conversation, they're open to criticism, and they're willing to to have the conversation. And my my big question with with Chris and the decoding the gurus is whether they can avoid some of the issues that have plagued the IDW. Like they're can they avoid the same kind of audience capture dynamics where they're just encouraged then to sort of dunk more and more and more. And I know I'm going to put out a piece with Chris and about decoding the gurus fairly soon. And I I know it's going to upset some people that I already have friendships with in the IDW space. And and that that's been a big a big thing about my experience of the trajectory of the last few years is that I've upset a lot of people with my interview with Dave Rubin, for example, where he basically blocked me on blocked me afterwards, refused to cut to uh, continue the conversation. James Lindsay, the same thing happened to, and there's been various others. Obviously, kind of, I had the, I was critical of Brett and Heather as well with their what I see as very irresponsible messaging around COVID, and I called them out. Well, I actually was in dialogue with Brett for a lot behind the scenes. But this is one of the big factors that I think is nobody knows really how to deal with. People are trying to wrestle with it in, in real time, but no one really knows how to deal with what do you do when your friendships coincide with your kind of your, your attempt to get at the truth right. cross, cross with like the incentive structures and your friendships. And like you can hear Sam Harris very much kind of wrestling with that in real time with, with his when he he also did something similar where he was very critical of Brett and Heather. And I I was in contact with Brett a lot behind the scenes, asking him to come on and have a dialogue around some of the stuff he was doing, asking him to host a me- medical figures who were getting in touch with me and saying, I'm really concerned about the messages that Brett's putting out. He used to be a fan. I want to go on his podcast and have that conversation. He refused and still has not hosted anyone who disagrees. And I did a series of pieces because I was really worried about this kind of increasing contrarianism and conspiratorialism that was kind of coming into the heterodox space and definitely lost a lot of kind of the audience, 
mm. off the back of that, got a lot of criticisms. And I still don't know if I did the right thing because I don't know if there is a right thing to do in that environment. But, but yeah, I, f- I found it deeply difficult and uncomfortable at the time, which was last summer. And yeah, there, there, there are these very sort of deep ethical, moral issues that we don't know how to deal with when we have bec- we fused with our like we used to be sort of protected by the institutions in a way like the news organization would have a certain perspective whereas now we're out we're all our individual news organizations we don't really know what the rules are when they overlap with friendship or whether that, when they overlap with yeah other well, other it's, warping factors. and it's your livelihood i mean if you don't yeah. if you lose your audience you're because you didn't tow a certain line you're going to lose your livelihood but i'm curious david why do you say you don't know if you did the right thing because if you were authentic to your own set of insights, how could that be anything other than the right thing? Um, because I wonder whether there were other opportunities that were lost along the way. That I wonder whether it might have been possible to continue to sort of host dialogues across that divide without nailing my colors so firmly to, even though I wasn't at the time feeling like I was nailing my colors to firmly to one side of the divide, I was just saying these specific things don't make sense. And we need a a healthier process of coming to truth together was what I was trying to say. But in, in retrospect, it did look like I was taking sides in around this sort of very emotive issue, which in some ways, I guess I was on that specific topic. But I think the greater opportunity that I feel was lost was creating some way of mediating and coming to truth in a more healthy way. Mm. You know, do you ever think about like, you know, the the experience of somebody who's had a real cancellation event, like Brett and Mm. Heather, um, you know, somebody who has been um, deeply, deeply wounded and damaged by, Mm. by something like that, Versus people like us who are really not canceled. We're sort of, we're observing the cancellations and we maybe have lost friends and people kind of rolling their eyes at us or whatever it is, but that's a very different kind of way of being in the world. And I, I do mm. notice that a lot of, a lot of people who do feel very aggrieved and often for good reasons, they're, they're going to tend to just dig in a lot more and there's going to be a kind mm. of conspiratorial uh, maybe sensibility that like you and I don't have. And I don't really, this isn't really a question, but it's, it's something that I think about. It's almost just like, it's kind of like, are we appropriating, you know, are we speaking for them? Uh, we, we have a sort of uh, privileged position in that we haven't been hurt as much by these things. So it's easy for us to say, well, why can't you just, why can not, why can Brett and Heather not just sit there and be like, okay, you know what? Maybe we're, maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're not out to get just because we're paranoid you know, it doesn't mean they're out to get us. But I don't know. Maybe we're we're not being uh, having enough empathy for for how it feels to be them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the the paranoia in many cases predates the event and contributes to the event as well. Because if you start reacting to things in that way, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. If you become convinced that everyone is out to get you, and therefore you can't possibly have the conversation with someone because they might be kind of ready to kind of expose you and they're out with a nefarious agenda, then 
that just further entrenches you into that bubble. And I also think that there is a factor where if that has, if that kind of being cancelled has actually worked out quite well for you in the past, in the long run, then you start kind of, it starts becoming an attractor in terms of actually it, it, it becomes, it becomes also a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, we're being very careful not to name names and I don't know if that's, if, if, you know, I'm being sort of a coward or if, if that's a, if that's a judicious, uh, strategy, but you know, I, have you noticed this thing where a lot of people sort of brag about being canceled? They want to be canceled uh, and they're not mm. really canceled. It's like they, they kind of have this idea of themselves as these, as these sort of dark heroes and they're, no one's really paying yeah. that much attention to them. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, there is an attractor now and has been for quite a while. Actually, Chris Williamson, who was recently on the Decoding the Gurus podcast and is a friend of mine, talked quite openly about that, talked quite openly in the conversation that we had where he was almost rejected from a TED talk because of an interview he'd done with Douglas Murray. And he talks about having that kind of inner dialogue with himself where he was like, oh, this, this could work out really well for me. This could be, and where he wasn't sure at the time, kind of like whether he should capitalize on it or not. And I think he went ahead in the end with the, with the talk, but there was a point where he felt like I could, I could make this work for me. This could be my kind of cause celebre that, and he went through that, that whole kind of inner thought process and decided that it would be a, a moral compromise that would come back to bite him in the end if he did. But he, he talks about, like he, he talks about having the conversation with quite a few people and he, he came to the conclusion that it would it would be something that would work for him. He probably would get onto some podcasts. He probably would find. And so I I wonder, in retrospect, when I look back at some of the high profile cancellations, I do wonder if some people sort of steered into that at some on some level. Mm. Can you think of that any the, examples? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> name any names. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Might be worth not naming names, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, there's the people who steered into it, but are you are those people who were already sort of professional media people to begin with? Because there's that cohort, but then there are the just the regular kind of academics or just people who find themselves caught up in this, and then they become almost folk heroes and they sort of lean into that. Yeah, I mean the other thing to to note is that you've got to be careful when you're talking about cancellations because you can only be canceled really by your own in-group. Exactly. And a lot of people who are kind of claiming to be canceled, it's like, well, you being criticized by the New York Times doesn't matter because that's not your in-group, whereas right. someone else being criticized by the New York Times. And the, and the other thing is that what does bravery look like in the alternative media environment? For me, it has to look like saying something that your own audience is going to disagree with. And we should be looking for those people who are willing to say things because you can start off by saying things that is kind of counter mainstream. And I would, I would put myself in this category as well. Like I sometimes get comments on some of the videos that I put out on Rebel Wisdom saying, oh, call this Rebel Wisdom. This is, this is conventional wisdom. You're a, you're a media shill. 
because I'm 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 trying to put out a slightly more nuanced perspective than just contrarian heterodox takes all the time because I find them pretty boring. And and I kind of want to respond to that and say, well, actually, yes, putting something out that I know my own audience is going to disagree with, I do think that's kind of brave, and that is kind of what rebellion I think looks like in the alternative media environment is that you may start off being anti anti or critical of the mainstream but once you've built your ecosystem that's a new you're no longer heterodox you're no longer heterodox because that heterodox ecosystem has become a new a new um conformity homodox yes exactly i don't know what the word would be (laughs) yeah Yeah, the homodox academy and and so then you've got a it's the same thing that i guess great artists of the past like david bowie realized that you'd have to keep reinventing yourself because because if you don't then you're ended up you end up with an audience who just want to hear the old tunes from your last album rather than what might be really alive for you right now um but david bowie had a record label that would stay with him and continue to pay him that's a good point yeah i'm using david bowie as one example but i think the kind of the the, the broader point works even though i wouldn't compare Anyone I know to David Bowie. No, that's what I, but it's like, this is the thing. Now that we're so siloed, everybody is, is a free agent. Everybody's relying on direct subscribers. I mean, this is what happened to the New York Times. As soon as the New York Times became dependent on a subscription model, the digital subscribers, it wrapped itself around the flag of the resistance, of the hashtag resistance. And it became mm. what we, what we see in the New York Times today, which is highly, highly worthy of criticism, not entirely. But I mean, the direct the, the direct to subscriber model is uh, it, it it rewards saying the same thing over and over again. Reinvention is going to yeah. uh, be self sabotaging proposition. Yeah, and just to dig a little bit further into that dynamic, it means that if you put out something that's going to get people to unsubscribe, that's the that's the kind of kryptonite stuff that you won't go anywhere near. Which for the New York Times has become anything that is that doesn't toe the line on gender pronouns, for example, or any other topic. So it's, it's more that you're, you're much more likely to lose people who you offend by putting out stuff that might challenge their pre-existing biases than you are to attract new people with something right, like that. Right, right, right. Well, so when you left Legacy Media, what, did people think that you had kind of, um, you know, gone rogue or something? Like, what was the... What, what were yes. your relationships like with your <laughs> colleagues? <laughs> I actually asked a friend of mine to make some delicate inquiries to find out how I'm how I'm seen, because there was yeah there there I know I mean Channel Four News is pretty much it wasn't as bad while I was there, but it became the wokest place on TV, and Channel Four is kind of the wokest TV channel in the UK. Also, very 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 good news organization. But I know that they did think that I'd gone kind of crazy when I when I left. More to do with the gender stuff, from what I understand, than necessarily just the Jordan Peterson interview, because I I'd been putting out stuff, and we we also started leading men's retreats as well, kind of independently of the media side of Rebel Wisdom. But it was something that happened at about the same time, and I think they really didn't understand that at all. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things I've been thinking about 
believe it or not, are sort of heterodox women's retreats. Because this is a very male-dominated space. And anybody who knows me knows I'm the last person to want to like have separate categories for women's things. And I don't, you know, I, I think, I think we are anything but an oppressed group. Uh, I think, uh, we actually, um, are doing better than men in a lot of ways. But in this kind of ecosystem, there are very few women speaking out for a lot of reasons. And I think some of them are pretty obvious. The social penalties for speaking out. It's not that they're worse for women, but women tend to be in general more sensitive to those penalties. Um, so I've been thinking about ways to kind of bring women in, but I also kind of cringe a little bit because I don't want to be like the women's guru. So I'm curious why you thought it was important to have men's retreats. Um, because it was something that helped me an awful lot in the past. I did. I mean, I, I kind of became a bit of a workshop junkie for quite a long time doing various kind of therapeutic processes and transformational processes, starting with something called the Hoffman process and then moving on through various other workshops. And I did something called Mankind Project back in 2009 and then a lot of follow up work. And that was really powerful for me, sort of leadership stuff and just understanding myself a lot more, a lot of what Jordan Peterson talks about, to be honest, like the integration of the shadow and becoming more self-aware. And and then it was something that I felt comfortable teaching and was also lucky enough to be mentored by an amazing guy who's been doing this kind of work for about 40 years. So it kind of happened quite naturally and organically. But I also feel like there is a real need for it in the culture because there isn't a lot of work around kind of emotional literacy for men. And what I find in particular is that there's a lot of the guys who come to our retreats say, talk about this kind of catch-22 position that they're in that I think is very real in the culture where they're encouraged to, they've got two contradictory messages. One, to be more emotionally uh, vulnerable, to be more kind of, and on the other side, stop taking up so much space. I mean, we want to we want to hear what you really think, but shut up. You're talking too much. And this is this is a double bind. This is a, a crazy double bind that I think the culture at large is imposing on men. That we saw with like the Gillette ad, where the same people who earlier were saying we need we need men to be more vulnerable and talk about their feelings, when lots of men objected to that ad, they said, "Look at these crybabies." You need to man up. And it's like, this is, yeah, this is a, we've got a very weird schizophrenic attitude, I think, to, to what is wanted from men in society. And so I do think that, and I also do think that the gender conversation is right at the heart of a lot of these cultural dynamics. And I think it's fueling a lot of the cultural dynamics and in some way and in very hidden ways a lot of the time. Mary Harrington, she thinks that a lot of the the kind of woke overreach and the the kind of cancelling within organisations over sort of these kind of hot button topics are basically female jockeying for position using this as an excuse. She thinks that because we've got so many more women in the workforce and so much of the the kind of women's rivalry is hidden that a lot of these are now manifesting of kind of like the the in-group and the out-group using these kind of 
um, accusations and sort of cancelling tech techniques as a way of jockeying for position. Right. So it was ever thus. This is this is like a Mean Girls uh, 4.0 or something. Yeah. 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 Do you have thoughts about the men's rights movement? I think men's rights are fascinating. I think that whole mm. world has been really underexplored and is misunderstood. I think, unfortunately, the people, the, the sort of leaders in that sphere are kind of bad actors or just not really equipped to handle the, the dimensions of the discussions. But I find that stuff fascinating. Custody, mm. just issue, you know, issues around parental custody, domestic violence. You know, the whole the, the Duluth model, which I don't know if you know what that is. In, you know, in the U.S., that means that basically in most municipalities, if the police are called to any kind of domestic violence, you know, any kind of domestic violence call, the man is automatically going to be the one who is arrested or assumed to be at fault. You know, the idea that women can never be abusers. I mean, that I think there's so much um, unexplored terrain there. And I wonder if that's something that, that you've done anything on or, or thought a lot about. Yeah, we did a series of of films about that quite early in Rebel Wisdom. I interviewed the woman who directed the Red Pill movie. That's um, a great Cassandra J. Cassie J. Yeah, Cassie J. She's yes. that movie is terrific. I think. Yeah, I was. It's interesting because I was a little bit skeptical of the story that was told in the movie because the way the movie goes is that she was wanting to do. But she was persuaded by them that she wanted to right. do a kind of expose on the men's yes. rights movement and then was persuaded. And I, as a documentary maker, I watched that and I thought, how much of that is actually true? Because it's such a convenient, convenient. narrative. Yeah. And so I was I was skeptical. But then I met um, one of the people in it who I really have a huge amount of respect for, Warren Farrell, who who is known as the father of the men's movement. But this in itself is really fascinating. He's known as the father of the men's movement, but he's actually a couples counselor. And he began the men's movement because he was he was a male feminist who saw the consciousness raising circles in the 70s and then of, of women and wanted to create something similar for men. And then when he heard some of the stories coming out of those about men's kind of uh, the issues that were coming up around custody or around like some of their their troubles and then started trying to bring those into the women's movement he was shut down and told no when we're not here for that and also his breaking point was when he realized that children were not at the center that they would support the whatever the mother wanted ahead of the the rights of the child or the the needs of the child and he said okay this is a breaking point I, and he and he left the national organization for women but anyway i met him and he told me that her story, Cassie J's story, was completely true, that she had gone through that kind of dark night of the soul of, oh, no, am I going to be hated when I put this film out? And he said, yes, you are. It's, it's inevitable. And she went through it anyway. And so I had a really interesting interview with her where I kind of challenged her on a few things. And she was very happy to kind of defend herself. And so, yes, the, the men's rights movement... I also did an interview with one of the leaders of the men's right movement that I felt uncomfortable with and I didn't actually put out because it didn't quite fit. And also because, yeah, what's his name? Paul Elam. Oh, yeah. Famously, Paul, Paul Elam is one of the is one of the sort of most strident voices in the men's rights movement. And is there is a lot of misogyny. There is a lot of misogyny among a lot of people within the men's rights movement. And it's caused by 
them feeling deeply hurt at the hands of women. And so much of the fuel for the kind of extreme side of the feminist movement is caused by women who feel deeply hurt by their interactions with men. And the problem with the men's rights movement is because the, the media is dominated by essentially a kind of feminist and slightly misandrist perspective, there isn't space for the conversation around, there isn't space for a healthy conversation around men's rights. So it gets relegated to the online space where it goes underground and then I think becomes, goes septic, becomes extreme. And you get men who have these experiences with women where instead of being able to say, well, yeah, women are people too. And often women will act out emotionally. Often women will behave emotionally violently. And that's something that there is such a thing as toxic femininity as, as much as, well, if you're going to use those, you're going to use those frames and say toxic masculinity, then obviously there's toxic femininity oh, I, as that's, well. I've said it's, it's sexist to uh, deny that there's such a yeah. thing as, to, as toxic femininity. I mean, how, yeah. how, how dare you leave us out? Yeah. Yeah. And so you get, instead of a healthy conversation, which is, yes, women are people as well, and these things happen, what you end up with is young men who have those experiences find their way to these forums and not then they're told not that women will sometimes do this, but women will always do this. All women are like this. They're, there's a kind of very strong ideology of all women will betray you if they, if they find a, a man who's got more alpha qualities than you do. You're a sucker if you, et cetera, et cetera, the men's rights, men going their own way. And it's understandable. A lot of the fuel for those movements has some validity, but it goes toxic when it becomes a kind of all pervasive ideology and a a separatist ideology where rather than how do we work this out together with healthy women who've done their own work who are who are able to to have yeah it relationships are difficult and and this is the very thing that jordan peterson was getting at when he first emerged for a lot of people right i mean this was what was compelling about him because he was kind of synthesizing all of this in a way that was fairly legible and pretty pretty even keeled and now he's kind of lost that thread well i mean before i let you go david i mean you know you and i have talked about this idea i i i kind of want to call it the heterodox 2.0 you know we had the uh the idw crowd and you know, now there are there are people like like us sort of trying to do a slightly more nuanced take on some of these ideas. What do you think is the future of this space? I mean, we've we've talked about that a lot, but you know, really in in concrete terms, do you have a a vision for all of this going forward? I mean, it's a good question as to how much there is a this space anymore at all. Right. There is no there there. There is no space in this space. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Given given the fragmentation that's happened and the kind of famous fallouts and a lot more subterranean fallouts between a lot of the kind of the the, the high profile members of the heterodox space, my hope is for I think we have to look at process rather than content. I think, as you said before, you were pointing to like the the limitations of something like debate, and I think the most interesting conversations now are around what are the 
techniques, the practices, the technologies that we can use to facilitate good faith dialogue? How can we create spaces where people feel we're able to kind of establish trust, we're able to establish protocols of interaction among people who are able to go there? Because I also think that you can't go there without recognizing all the ways we go off track, whether that's kind of emotional hijack and developing emotional literacy or whether it's incentive hijack by people performing for their in-group rather than trying to negotiate and kind of come to a come to a dialogue, which is the other factor to, to bear in mind is that it takes bravery often to be a kind of emissary from one tribe to another and have those difficult conversations where you know you're going to get blowback from your own people, your own side. Famously, that's that's the most dangerous place to be in any kind of peace negotiation. And you often will get far more criticism and danger from people on your own side who feel that you've betrayed them. So I feel like the the camps are so well established. And another piece I'd highly recommend is my friend Peter Lindbergh's foundational piece called The Mimetic Tribes of Culture War 2.0, where he talked about it being a, a, a multipolar war where some of the hottest battles are on theoretically the, the, your own side nowadays. So I think we need to look at things like how do we mediate between the warring tribes? What are the kind of qualities that we need to develop in ourselves? What are the kind of environments that we need to create? Like that's where I think the conversation needs to go, not so much from a propositional level of what's the opinions to have and the focus on just the kind of the content, but I think on the process and the yeah the ways that we might be able to 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 come to a healthy healthier form of truth seeking together. Yeah, yeah, and I think so much of it is to what you're doing, you you are bringing in regular people. You're not just like facilitate, facilitating dialogues between people who have platforms. You have enormous amounts of people coming to your, you know, signing up for your 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 workshops and your classes, your courses. You you kind of you're you're bringing the world in. That sounds grandiose, but I think that that's going to be an important component of a lot of this going forward. So, well, David, thank you so much for speaking with me as always. It's always good to talk with you and um, hopefully we can continue the conversation. Yeah, real pleasure, Megan. I think we've just scratched the surface. So let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. That was my interview with journalist, broadcaster and filmmaker David Fuller. His media platform, Rebel Wisdom, can be found on YouTube and also at rebelwisdom.co.uk. A video version of this interview is available, or will soon be available, on the Unspeakable Podcast Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. And speaking of that page, you can join for as little as $5 a month. That gets you things like early ad-free access to the show. And if you join at the $10 a month level or higher, you get all kinds of perks, including the ability to join our bi-weekly hangouts on Sunday evenings when we get together on Zoom and talk about a recent episode of the podcast. If you join at the $20 a month level or higher these days, you will get a personal signed copy of the new edition of my book, The Problem With Everything, the new paperback edition, which includes a new foreword. Um, I will also shout out your name and or your nonprofit organization of choice at the top of the show if you like. Again, that's patreon.com slash the unspeakable. 
Finally, the deadline for applications for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom is at the end of this week, Friday, March 18th. The class itself runs from April 4th through May 23rd, and you can go to daummasterclass.com to find out all about that. And that is more than enough for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.